Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Maria Anderson, who's the CEO of a company called Coursetune. We're going to get into all manner of instructional design activity and course schematics and all that good stuff. Maria, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Maria and I met as part of a new weekly livecast that I've launched with Dr. Terry Givens, uh, who's fantastic. We had Maria on as one of our first guests to talk about Course Tune, and it was such a great conversation that I wanted to go deeper and bring Maria on to Trending in Education. We'd like to begin our conversations by getting our, our guests to tell us their origin story, what got you to where you are in your uh, career and why would an audience who likes to know what's new and emerging in learning and education, what could they get from understanding your story? So in your own words, Maria, what got you to where you are these days? This is a complicated story, I think. I was from the get-go not very good at deciding on a distinct career path. So my undergraduate education, I actually got three degrees in math, chemistry, and biology. Yeah. Mostly because I couldn't decide and somewhat because I was too close to getting a degree and didn't have enough credit. So I had to do at least two. Mm -hmm. So that kind of laid the foundation for seeing a broad amount of curriculum because I saw the the full curriculum for three different subjects. Right. Yep. And then uh, when I went to grad school, I, I uh, actually saw three more sets of curriculum. I started in chemical engineering and then mm -hmm. left that program. So I did a full year of engineering. And then I started working on an MBA, which I did finish. And I halfway, well, maybe like a semester or two into my MBA, I decided that what I really wanted was a master's in math. So then I saw the graduate curriculum for math as well. Wow. Um, and I did that because I wanted to teach math. So I did go and teach math for 10 years as a professor at a community college. Mm -hmm. um, and during that time, I spent a lot of time working with faculty on how to teach better specifically through the guise of how to teach online better. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ran workshops uh, every summer for faculty to come from across the country and learn how to teach math online. Mm -hmm. A lot of technical involvement there to yeah. learn how to do all of the different aspects of math online, from the graphs to the math to the captions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to do it well, to be able to uh, engage the students, still have connection and good communication and all that. Mm -hmm. And so I got to start seeing like the problems of the whole math community, the whole uh, nation. And, and towards the end of my career at the community college, I started doing more general workshops on learning analytics and social mm -hmm. media and cognitive uh, learning and, and things like that. So expanding into a larger audience than just math. Mm -hmm. So I went from there to uh, work at Instructure, worked at Canvas for a year. Mm -hmm. And spent my time there mostly working on their Canvas network platform, which was to deliver massive open online courses or MOOCs. Yes. And that was really interesting from an instructional design perspective. Mm -hmm. I'd already branched out into seeing like uh, a wider perspective of lots of curriculum because I was doing more general workshops for people mm -hmm. and having to troubleshoot their needs. But with Canvas network, we needed to launch like 40 classes in six months with right. different schools and all of them and different topics. So we had to design good online courses for all those different topics for an audience of thousands yeah. that was engaging, that used the platform. And so every week we launched a couple more and it was like a new experiment. We'd see what worked, what didn't work and 
tweak the next week's launches. And so it was like a rapid fail, rapid succeed uh, yeah, type yeah. experience with with launching those 40 courses mm-hmm. and with QAing, doing the, the quality assurance sure. of the 40 courses and working with the faculty and developing our own rubric for what was you know good and, and what was needed improvement. Yep. And so that was like, I would say a little bit of a trial by fire to instructional design as a discipline. And I I left that to work at Area 9 Labs, which was a company that did the adaptive learning for Mm -hmm. McGraw-Hill's products. So there it was like a a different education in instructional design because now it was like more of curriculum architecture, but Mm -hmm. architecture for an adaptive learning platform. Mm -hmm. And so it was like another kind of look at how we can architect curriculum down to very granular detail. Mm-hmm. And you could see the struggle that faculty had in understanding how that all worked and how the system would work and how you could link learning materials and, and assessment materials to those really granular, I would call them almost sub-skills. Mm-hmm. And then my final job before before Corstein was working as the director of, of learning design for Western Governors University. Ah, mm-hmm. And there I worked with our entire team of instructional designers and learning experience designers. We worked across all of the the colleges at WGU on all of the curriculum there. We worked with 108 different vendors at the time that were Mm -hmm. delivering courseware for the different programs. And so each platform had its own unique challenges. Each Mm -hmm. team, each curriculum had its own unique challenges. So yeah. Spent a lot of time working on um, IT curriculum and, mm-hmm. and uh, allied health nursing curriculum. Yeah, you're drinking from several different fire hoses across your career. They all seem like they're yeah. very you know, industry leading, but scaling and just inundated with yeah, exactly. the breadth of the domain. Yeah, that was a true, I had done MOOCs and mm-hmm. this was like a, another scale there because, or, or another cut of it because mm-hmm. at WGU the content was self-paced right and so students start and stop at any time move at whatever pace they want to yeah. and that creates a lot of really unique problems in mm-hmm. curriculum design yeah who's accessing old curriculum who's accessing new curriculum yep. what's in the curriculum and mm-hmm. people kept you know coming in to our workshops and asking like what software do you use to organize your curriculum and like we were doing it in a self-made database that mm-hmm. um, was universally confusing to most of our users. And, yep. and you worked at Kaplan, so maybe you had something similar there. Yeah. Uh, and spreadsheets and documents. Inevitably, they would all be out of sync with each other. Mm-hmm. And we had situations where entire curriculums were lost because a SharePoint drive got disconnected right. and somebody quit. And you would just lose institutional knowledge of totally. the curriculum with every body that left mm-hmm. the college. Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking there, there's got to be a way to capture more of this institutional knowledge. and. Mm-hmm centralize where the curriculum is located, make a place where it's truly easy to understand what's in your curriculum, how it works together, um, how it links to your learning activities and your assessment activities, Mm -hmm. gaps in your curriculum, look for bloat in your curriculum, like all of those things, there's got to be a better way to do this. Mm -hmm. And so when I left WGU, myself and my two co-founders created CourseTune to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, to have a truly new way to 
target curriculum design that is made for curriculum design, not for the financial industry, <laughs> not for the IT nerds who like to uh, look at databases, yeah. but for the actual group of people doing the work in instructional mm -hmm. design, curriculum design, um, mm -hmm. faculty, who want something they could understand. Yeah, yeah. And then that, I think, leads you to where you are today as the CEO of CourseTune. And we're, we're going to get into this in a bit, but it's been a tumultuous, transformative year for everyone, but certainly for a, a company, an organization that's very much focused on instructional designers and online learning, 2020 must have been a, a, a truly transformative year in that respect, where, you know, this work's been going on for quite some time. You mentioned Canvas, which is an industry-leading LMS, which you worked at. You mentioned Western Governors uh, University, which is an industry-leading online university with a great mission. Those are really interesting areas of, of experience for you, for folks who are well-versed in, in online learning and instructional design and all these types of things. But a lot of people had managed their way through the 21st century without really leaning into instructional design. And then, and then 2020 has happened. And I'd love to get a little bit of perspective from you on what 2020 has been like. Obviously, it's been traumatic and we empathize with anyone who's lost any family or anyone who's, who's, who's facing economic hardships, having trouble with their jobs. But we also like to understand the perspective of folks who are leading organizations through this transformative year. What's it been like for you? And uh, what's it been like for folks who are interested in online learning and instructional design? I think we first experienced much the same as a lot of companies, which was a sudden change in engagement with customers, whether it's up or down. I actually have not been able yet to think of an industry that did not get affected by the pandemic. And so, yeah. and so we first experienced the same shock to the industry that most of education experienced, where everybody froze their budgets, mm -hmm. froze their decision making, mm -hmm. uh, just struggled to get through the March, April, May months. Yep. Uh, as they were, as their whole system flipped upside down to online and remote teaching for, mm -hmm. of course, the schools who already were online uh, teaching uh, probably didn't experience much of a shock. Yeah. Um, but I think for the rest of the colleges, it, it was a pretty big shock. Yep. And so we first, we experienced that, just a lot of folks. And then we kind of started to see it as an opportunity because we figured that uh, schools and faculty would both become a lot more interested in what's in the design of their course. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to have a good online experience if there's no design to it. Sure. You would have to basically architect an entire design for an entire semester in your head. Yeah. And we also started to see this recognition from faculty that maybe there was too much in their courses. Like, mm -hmm. I can't possibly teach all of this in an right. online format. Mm -hmm. And you, how are you teaching it in a face-to-face -face format? But suddenly when you have to actually post video lectures and mm -hmm. make assignments and mm -hmm. like put everything into courseware, it, it starts to be very overwhelming. You think it was probably overwhelming for the students too. Yep. You just lost the luxury of being able to say, do the work. And so we were starting to see this kind of mind opening of, of faculty to the idea that they might need to focus their courses on the most important topics, like what yeah. we might call the, the course objectives, you know? yeah. Yeah. and to reduce some of the bloat. And so we decided in, in May to uh, actually launch a faculty facing version of course tune called course plan. Mm -hmm. And this allows faculty to use 
the course planning features of CourseTune without having all of the additional mm -hmm. features that uh, an institution would want or a program would want, like right, right. really mapped program outcomes and institutional outcomes and see yep. connections across the curriculum. And so we did a very rapid development change to get a course plan built and uh, implemented on our website and out the door so that any faculty member who wanted to start having better tools for planning their the curriculum architecture would be able to access the power of the visualizations and, yeah. and um, abilities that CourseTune would provide. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one of our big kind of pivots to address uh, that particular aspect of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think now what we're seeing is a lot of institutions paying more attention now to, hey, what is actually in our curriculum? It's always been interesting to me. You know, I started studying learning analytics more than a decade ago, and it always bothered me that we were talking about learning analytics, but very few faculty could actually list the learning objectives of their courses. They might have the course objectives that the department set, but mm -hmm. very few could list the learning objectives in their courses. How do you measure learning via learning analytics if nobody knows what the students are supposed to be learning? Right, right. It's not, it doesn't make sense. And so I think what we've seen in the last decade is mostly attendance analytics. Mm -hmm or what I would call click analytics. We yep. have all sorts of graphs and charts about what students click on in right. courses in the LMS. Most LMS analytics are scores yeah. and clicks. Mm -hmm. But scores and clicks don't actually tell me the exact things a student knows or has right. learned, right? Right, right. And we won't ever get there if faculty don't know what students are learning in courses. Ideally, you should never create a, a learning activity or an assessment activity unless you know what you're targeting in those activities. Right. And so one of the things we focused on when we were designing CourseTune was a structure that kind of pushes you towards good design as yep. you build. Yep. So you can't add a learning activity or an assessment activity unless you first link it to learning objectives. So you can't just say, I want a discussion every week. Mm -hmm. You have to say, okay, what learning objectives do I want to cover in this discussion in week one? Yeah. What learning objectives do I want to cover in this discussion in week two? Because if all we're doing is saying, yeah, there'll be a discussion every week and we don't know what we're focusing on, mm -hmm. then they tend to start to be busy work. Right. Like we're just having a discussion for the sake of having a discussion. Mm -hmm. There's no reason it has to be that way. You can yeah. have a discussion for the sake of a discussion that also includes real learning for students. Yeah, um, well, and, and I think there, there is something to be said for tacit knowledge. So there is some implicit understanding that faculty who have taught these courses for years have, and frequently it's based on some books or papers. So like they do, there's an annotated bibliography perhaps, or at least a bibliography, there's a syllabus, but they're not- textbook. And a textbook, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's not necessarily depth beyond that, and then, we have talked a lot about how 2020, in some respects, has been the year of, I ain't got time for that. So like on top of all the other pressures in their personal lives and the, the concerns that faculty might have about their own health or their economic, just their safety, their family safety, taking on additional technology burdens is something that we've heard a lot about, particularly Zoom and Zoom fatigue and the emergency remote teaching that we talked a lot about from the spring. All those things don't necessarily get at what you're getting at, which is more thoughtful design, applying design thinking to courses and getting to the micro level 
in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, almost like a Occam's razor of instructional thinking, where if I'm teaching this, it's in service of some intentional learning objective that is going into the course that I'm building. I'd love to get your perspective on how we help faculty get there and what other types of resources exist in organizational ecosystems who you're also designing this for? Because I don't think it's, faculty probably are gonna, aren't gonna get there alone. So I'd love to hear you flesh out how you think about the whole ecosystem out there. Yeah, so there are some faculty who do get there on their own. They already have some kind of sense of what design architecture looks like, mm-hmm. and course can kind of help them solidify it mm-hmm. as they go through the process. We typically see uh, adoption by like a program dean or department chair who's looking to really understand what's in their curriculum across the entire student experience. Mm -hmm. It's a four-year degree that the student is learning. And they want to make sure they're not over-duplicating skills, leaving out skills. Mm -hmm. They want to align those course objectives and learning objectives and assessments Mm -hmm. to professional standards. And all of this becomes quite simple once you have your curriculum inside of inside of CourseTune. Mm -hmm. And so we typically see adoptions by some kind of academic leader of some sort who sees this as a tool to really start to get at is our whole degree designed correctly. Mm -hmm. As part of that you go down to the course level. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so we often have a model where for the schools that are lucky enough to have uh, instructional designers for the individual departments, we typically see a partnership between the instructional designer and the faculty members where the instructional designer will take a look at the course as it exists now. We we actually do, at CourseTune, we will pull in the school's data, however it's formatted, into CourseTune so that you can start wherever you're at. Yeah. And see, and wherever you're at can actually vary course by course across the department. So we'll see courses that have a ton of detail in them and mm-hmm. are I have clearly a lot of thought has gone into the architecture. Yeah. And then we'll see courses that have a course description and that's it. Right, you know, right, right. In the same department. And so uh, we pull in the data, however it looks, and then it, it's often the job of an instructional designer to sit down with a faculty member and really talk over, okay, here's what we're missing. How can mm-hmm. we go about finding that? So maybe a course has no learning objectives. Okay, right. how can we go about finding learning objectives? Do you use a textbook? Does the textbook mm-hmm. have any objectives in it that we could start to pull from? Is it a, is it an OER? Are there learning objectives there? Uh, what Or do you have lecture outlines of what right. you cover? Can we get learning objectives from what you typically cover? And so we like to start with what do you currently do? And then we go through this sorting process where we almost always end up pulling in the objectives on the layout of the course that's more by time. Like, how do you teach? Like, when do you teach things? And then we actually flip it on its head and say, here are the course objectives you say are in this course. Mm-hmm. Let's take all those learning objectives now and see if they match up to any course objective you yeah. have. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets really interesting mm-hmm. because we often find it's the case that at least one course objective has no learning objectives at all. Yep. And that there are a bunch of learning objectives that do not correlate with any course objectives at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And that either means you've got some course objectives that are wrong, or you've got some learning objectives that are just bloat and don't need to be there. Right. Or uh, you may be not actually teaching something you intend to be having the students learn. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I remember in my own experience of using course in the first time um, I pulled in one of my math classes and 
took a look at my course objectives versus my learning objectives and discovered as I was doing the sorting that I had a course objective that students should be able to analyze and answer for correctness. Is it, it, I think it was called reasonability. Is this answer reasonable or not? Yeah, I didn't have any learning objectives around that. So there was never a problem. There was never assessment around, is this answer reasonable or not? Yeah, right? yeah. Maybe that's why we hear other disciplines say, how come they can't tell if like, there's not a correct answer? Actually, looking at it through that same perspective, you're, you start to be able to have insight into the things that have not been obvious before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, math, we get criticized a lot for students not being able to apply what they yes. know. What relevance. Mm -hmm. Relevance, yeah, mm -hmm. or, or transferability of sure. novel problems. So if you look at like math curriculum, it's typically X's and Y's and integer coefficients. Yeah. No chemistry class uses X's and Y's and integer coefficients. Right. Mm -hmm. No physics class. <laughs> and so you start to realize that if this is a goal, transferability to other subject areas, then you need to make sure you have learning objectives that prepare them for re-indexing time, yeah. for using other letters as variables. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing. If they get so attached to X and Y, right. they can't leave it behind. They can't function when they see the same exact models in another subject area. Right. And so you start to realize you need to change things to get right. that novel transferability of ideas. Yeah, and I, and I could see how that would be really useful to a department, even beyond a department, almost like a provost or yeah. how do I make sure that between departments there's more interoperability and transferability, which is something that, that's huge really in the, the skills marketplace. And especially if you're in a domain like math, you want to develop some skills and competencies that are transferable and foundational because in a lot of ways that is the justification for learning math which is really interesting i do like the visualization piece and i'd love to hear a little more from you on that we talk a lot on the show about the picture superiority effect and how if you're able to understand something using uh, both visual and textual or semantic information people process it more deeply uh, we have debunked the the idea of visual learners, so you yeah, don't have to. Yeah. You you could do that again for us if you'd like. We'd love to hear more debunking. We'd love to debunk things, but it, there is research that has indicated we process information better when we can consume it in more than one modality. And there's also been, in addition to this renaissance around design thinking that sort of hits learning and every other domain that's out there. There's also this renaissance around next gen visualizations. That sounds very central to Course Tune's value prop. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about what that is and, and why you value it, how you think about developing the visualizations? Sure. Just to go with your, uh, with your debunking idea, I don't necessarily want to debunk it, but I just thought I would, would add one little detail here, which is that the human brain was not made to read text. Mm -hmm. The human brain was designed to remember imagery, yeah of the world, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and listen to podcasts, And listen, too. And listen yeah, to the, yeah. your elders, the people around you, right. the people who help you. For 10,000 years, we had images of the world and listening to the people around you. For yeah. 400 years, for the general public, mm -hmm. maybe even less for yeah. most general public, we've had text. Yeah. So the idea that text is the way we learn yeah. things is ridiculous because text is just a deficient transferal of information before we had things like video, right? Yeah, right. Um, and take, that, take that, Gutenberg. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it was a great 
efficient transmission of yeah. information, right? Like the Renaissance, everything comes about because we, we had text, but we have to stop with this idea that text is the end all be all for how we analyze things, how we remember things. Mm -hmm. I think actually there are quite a few people who don't remember easily by just reading text where if there's an image, if there's a graphic representation of something, mm -hmm. they can actually almost snapshot in their yep. mind that image of mm -hmm. where things sit on the page because our brains were made to remember images, right? Yeah, yeah. we've talked so, on the show uh, about mental athletes and uh, memory, com memory competitions. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. The method of loci and all that, which is you can connect visuals, you can anchor your memory around like a visual image more so than you can something abstract like text. So yeah, we're picking up what you're putting down, Maria. So with that in mind, when we were looking for design for like, how would we design curriculum software? You know, I spent quite a bit of time just sitting and looking at different graph theory, like the whole, what is his name? Tufty, Edward, Edward Tufty. Yeah, Tufty and all of the great visualization artists and mm -hmm. their work. So I spent quite a bit of time just like sitting on the floor for a few days, like paging through those kinds of books, yeah, looking yeah. for something that we could maybe hang curriculum design on yeah. to make it more real to people. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about curriculum design, when you log into an online course, everything is under menus. Everything is under yeah. drop down menus, right? Mm -hmm. You never see the whole course. You might see the eight modules in the course, right? or what's in one module in right, the course. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's in each drop down of that one module of the course you never see the whole picture at once mm -hmm. and at some point i hit a i hit a, an image of a, of a circular representation for something and i thought let's try that the nice thing about a circular representation is you can essentially see everything whereas a linear representation you will always have stuff that falls yeah something has to be top and bottom and yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we we started with that and as soon as we saw a course actually laid out that way we were like oh yeah, this can work mm -hmm. because we have the, the course is the center of the circle. And then outside of the course, you have your maybe five to 10 course objectives, which sit, you know, surrounding it. Yeah. You know, like, like they're orbiting. The, yeah. The course. yeah. And then um, on each course objective, you have the learning objectives that go with the course. And as you attach things like assessments and, and learning activities, you're actually attaching, attaching them as arcs, almost like the tree rings of a tree yep. outside of that central architecture. And so you are actually able to see the course objectives, the learning objectives, the activities, and then how it maps to skills, professional standards, program objectives, institutional mm -hmm. objectives, all in one picture. Yeah. And so you can start to get a sense of what is good course design by just mm -hmm. looking at the image yeah. of a course. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. If the tree rings all look really crazy and disjointed and there's yeah. a there's 13 different levels. It's like, this course is too complicated. Students mm -hmm. are not going to understand it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Figure out how to reduce it from 13 rings around the tree to like maybe six rings around right. the tree. Right. By renaming activities, by mm -hmm. creating more structure. We can all now like just take a look at a, the way a course looks and yeah. have a pretty good idea of what's done, what's not done. Yeah. Uh, what's probably good design, what might be bad design. Mm -hmm. um, it's like looking yeah. at like a medical professional looking at an x-ray or an MRI. Yeah. By now you've seen enough of these where you can type the course design based on the visualization and, and you're relatively early. We didn't get into that, but like you're three years in, you were saying, in yeah. terms of course tunes. So like you're still 
gathering information so that you can start understanding those trends. But for those of you who are neck deep in this, living and breathing it, you're becoming domain experts in terms of this stuff. Are you, are you doing research about the, 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 the efficacy and like how do folks out there in the world understand that how this works and that it's more effective? It sounds like a very persuasive case. You're relatively early on, so you may not have the, the, enough research yet to validate it, but I would be curious your plans around measuring, almost applying the same type of thinking you were uh, talking about before to the efficacy of Tune as a platform. Have you done thinking about that? We provide the software that lets people do careful architecture for their curriculum, right? Yep, yep. And then the efficacy comes around, does a careful architecture lead to improved student outcomes? Right. And that is going to vary so much from school to school. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard for us to measure the efficacy. So we are to a great extent relying on existing research that shows that good organization results yep. in better student outcomes. Mm-hmm. That making sure that your assessment and learning is well aligned yep. leads to good student outcomes, yep, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. That mapping to uh, program outcomes leads to solid degrees for students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so to some extent, we have to rely on the research done in education itself yep. um, that links the curriculum architecture to the efficacy at that school. Right. Right. Course tune is a way to do that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it and will not solve your architecture problems for you. We're not, right. it's not magic. And it makes sense though. It, it may help the more advanced course designers, the way you were describing it, faculty who already are very thoughtful in their design intent, but it's more a way to level up the entirety of an organization so that you have the basic tooling you need to apply design thinking to your pedagogy, really. Your your entire course design can be more thoughtful. It's almost using the Adobe Creative Suite to make great design outputs is something that designers just know it's, that they really need to rely on those tools to be effective. In some ways, this is a corollary on on the instructional side. Makes a lot of sense. I did want to make sure we get a chance to get your perspective on what other trends you're seeing out in the world uh, around us. But before we go there, any other final thoughts before we get your your perspective on new trends that are emerging in the world around us? I think my final thought, at least on Course Tune, is Mm -hmm. that one day the pandemic's going to be over. Mm -hmm. Nobody's quite sure what day it is, but Mm -hmm. hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. And when that happens, you are going to get hit by the things that we've been putting off because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And one of those things that we've been putting off a little bit in education is really designing for the new workforce and the new yep. jobs that are coming and the retraining people who are going to be losing their jobs. Yep. And as the pandemic is going, AI in the workplace has not slowed down sure. at all. I would right. say if anything, it's sped up because we've seen that having human beings do some of this work yep. is not medically safe. And so more and more companies are like, hey, we, can we have a computer loaded yeah. with artificial intelligence do this work instead of a human? Yeah. Well, then let's do that. It might even be cheaper than hiring a human. So on the other side of this pandemic, when we're done with dealing with the medical issues, I think we're going to have a real issue with loss of jobs that aren't coming back, needing yep. to retrain mm-hmm. humans to do different kinds of work, more skilled work yep. a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and uh, to quickly flex into different kinds of jobs and be able to teach how to work with AI software 
yeah. which most schools I would say probably are not ready to support. Right. And to do that quickly at the end of this pandemic, you're going to have to start by knowing what's in your curriculum. You, you need to yeah. be able to remix your curriculum into new degree programs, new certificates. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are a lot of people who are thinking to themselves, I lost my job. I think I'll go back to school for a four-year degree. Right. I, I just don't think we live in that luxury anymore. You right. have too many adults mm -hmm. who have, we like to talk about the some education, no degree. Yeah, problem, yeah, right? right, right. And colleges just have to get better at faster paths to something that lets a person level up. Yep, right? yep. So whether that's making sure we actually give associates on the way to bachelor's, associates that allow you to level up in your field, yep. to get a slightly better paying job, to uh, get a job that can support a family mm -hmm. um, on the way to a bachelor's, so that you don't have to wait four years for yeah. that better job. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just have to wait two semesters or four semesters for that yep. better job. And that every course is doing its best to teach real life skills mm -hmm. not just what you need for the next class yeah yeah and so i think now is the time to look at your curriculum and ask yourself with every class what does a student leave this class being able to do that can help them get a promotion get a raise get something right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i now look at my math classes and say I want a student to leave this class being able to do more at work than they used to be able to do, yeah. to be able to analyze data better than they used to be able to do, mm -hmm. to be able to look at uh, graphs and, and data in the news with more of a critical eye than they've yep. had before. Yeah, yeah. Right? To know when they're being duped. <laughs> right. Yeah, like think <laughs> back. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. that was not the goal of this math class 10 years ago. Right. It was to prepare students for calculus. Mm -hmm. And just to reinforce that point, it's not just true in higher ed, this is true in K-12, it's true in workforce development, lifelong learning, reskilling, outskilling, upskilling are all topics we've talked a lot about. So if you're more in the, the, the corporate world and learning and development in that space, the same problems apply. And CourseTune, we were talking while, you, while we were prepping, it, it's not just for higher ed, it's really for higher ed, K-12, lifelong learning and development, workforce development. Because the future of work, to your point, is going to be really different in terms of the skills that are needed than what went into the original course design for higher ed, which dates back you know, six, seven hundred years to Bologna and other academies across the world. Uh, really interesting time and a really fascinating time. And it sounds like a lot of the tools that CourseTune is building are, are certainly relevant to folks who are trying to just wrap their head around all this and, and get some perspective. Speaking of perspective, though, we did want to hear from you. Anything else uh, that's out there in the world that is capturing your attention these days that you think folks who are trying to uh, stay ahead of trends and care about learning in the future, anything that's capturing your imagination that you want to share with our listeners? Ooh, capturing the imagination. I am spending a lot of time looking at AI and implications of AI, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, also robotics, which I mm -hmm. think is coming along at quite a fast clip and learning robotics, learning algorithms, things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm, I'm actually fairly optimistic about how education is gonna come out of this. Mm -hmm. I think that education got a boost about a decade forward in time. To have trained all faculty to be able to teach remotely uh, yeah. under normal circumstances would have taken us 10 years. Yep. A lot of teeth pulling mm -hmm. and a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. I think that 
we are going to leave this pandemic with instructors and faculty having skills they didn't previously have, mm -hmm. which is going to benefit students ultimately because yeah. students have always had reasons they had to miss classes. Yeah. They have always had broken cars and right. sick kids yeah, yeah. and days they couldn't make it to class mm -hmm. where they missed a bus or they just couldn't drag themselves out of bed because of anxiety or something. And the ability we now have to record a live class, yeah. we all, we've had that ability for a long time. Almost every faculty member and instructor now knows how to record a live class, yeah. how to bring somebody into class remotely. I mean, mm -hmm. even if they're teaching in the classroom right now, yeah. they have students in quarantine. Yeah, right. And they have to deal with those students. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think um, that the ultimate result is going to be that we are able to serve students better on the yeah. other side because students will know these things are possible <laughs> and instructors will know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that's a huge leap forward for education. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that is an element of hope. I agree with you. I think the the related point is that the, the issues around access inequities are also much more front and center so oh, for, yeah. on, for online learning so yeah. i think assuming that we can power through the pain of that those gaps and figure out how to open up those new modes of access uh, digital inclusion is the term that uh, that we talked a lot about on the show as as a like a macro trend that really has been accelerated by the by the pandemic awareness of these gaps but hopefully elevating the awareness of that will make it easier for everyone to access online learning once that happens, once we're able to bridge there, I think there's huge upside to your point around uh, many of the benefits of, of online learning. And, and then to, to bring it back to CourseTune, it does seem like tools like what you've built at CourseTune are gonna be essential to help folks navigate what was already a complex universe. How do you make it a little simpler to understand? How do you have tools that are enabling instructional designers and faculty members to be better at what they do. That's a lot of what CourseTune is about. If folks want to learn more about CourseTune or any of this stuff, where should they go? Uh, CourseTune.com, C-O-U-R-S-E-T-U-N-E. -E. There you go. And uh, Maria Anderson, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, this week. Thank you. And uh, for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, share the episode, write a lovely review somewhere, and uh, grab someone else's phone and download it for them. Do whatever you need to do to get the word out there. We're trying to understand what's emerging in the world of learning. Thanks for listening to Trending in Education.